Hello, Robert England here, a.k.a. Freddy Krueger, and you're listening to GeeksOfTheIndustry.com. Don't fall asleep. Ladies and gentlemen, you are about to witness some scenes from the next attraction to play this. This picture, truly one of the most unusual ever filmed, contains scenes which under no circumstances should be viewed by anyone with a heart condition or anyone who is easily abused. We urgently recommend that if you are such a person, or the parent of a young or impressionable child now in attendance, that you and the child leave the auditorium for the next... Features, a horror discussion from geeksoftheindustry.com, and now your host, Chunky Larry. Greetings, fellow insomniacs, and welcome to an incredibly special episode of the Creature Features podcast on geeksoftheindustry.com. I'm your host, my name is Chunky Larry, and I, I I just, I'm at a loss for words for what I get, what I'm getting ready to do. Um, for those of you that have followed the show for the now three years that we've been doing the show, uh, the very first episode of Creature Features was an episode that was dedicated to the memory of Wes Craven, and we did that by talking about arguably one of my favorite Wes Craven films, Uh, a film that haunted me and terrified me, but intrigued me and has intrigued me to no end since I saw it when I was a 13-year-old boy, Um, and I, I never in a million years thought I would be fortunate enough to speak to anybody who was involved with that film. The film's name was Last House on the Left. And I get to speak to one of the most haunting actors in the film. Haunting in the sense that he was able to capture a level of glee, sadness, and darkness that is unparalleled in a lot of Wes Craven's work. I'm talking, of course, about a comedian, an actor, and a writer, and director. Mr. Mark Scheffler, how you doing? I'm okay, Larry. How you doing? I'm... I'm... I have a question. Yeah. 
formality. Do I call you Larry or do I call you Chunky? Do you I call, call you me. Chunky? You can call me whatever you want. Just don't call me late for dinner. Okay. Yeah. Is, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> I figure if you know if you're gonna be a funny guy, I'm gonna be a poor attempt at a funny guy. I'm a big believer in tapping your inner funny. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I could I could sit here and I could tell you all day about the importance of the film that you worked on and what it meant to me, but I'm sure that you've heard that a million times over at the various conventions that you've done, and whenever you interact with a fan who's worked, you know, or been able to, you know, speak to you at any level about the film what i'd much rather know about is you as a person i know that you started working in in theater off broadway and you were discovered by wes doing uh stand-up correct well actually uh i was doing stand-up at the time uh the the way i got the part in last house was i had uh, a manager at the time who uh, was the same manager who was handling Tom Jones and Engelbert Humperdinck, uh, uh, Lloyd Greenfield's management company. And, and their offices were in Rockefeller Center in New York. So the guy who was handling me, for uh, who worked for, for Lloyd, who, who was uh, uh, the, the comedy guy there, was a, a fellow by the name of Dick Towers. I walked into his office one day and he said to me, uh, I have a, a movie audition for you. Uh, uh, get on the bus, go down Fifth Avenue, uh, uh, go see uh, this building, this office, two guys named Wes and Sean. So I grab the paper and I go down, get to the building, I go in and it's this dingy office, you know, uh, like four or five rooms in it, a suite of offices. One of them has an old Steenbeck set up. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Steenbeck is a flatbed editing ma machine. Uh, and it's got film on it. And there are these two guys, one, one with uh, a tall, skinny guy with long, blonde hair and a short, chubby guy. Uh, uh, I think Sean had a mustache then. I'm not sure. I could be wrong. Uh, <clears throat> so they, I told them who I was and they said, uh, okay, do the scene. I did a scene. And left, went downstairs, got back on the uh, a bus, went uptown, uh, uh, got off, walked over to Fifth Avenue, back to Dick's office. And by the time I had gotten there, uh, they had already called and said, you know, uh, to paraphrase Mel Brooks in The Producers, that's our junior. <laughs> so that's it. And, and when you went out for this audition, did... Did they tell you at any point that the movie was called Sex Crime of the Century, or was that just a fun accident that you figured out after you no, went out? Here's the how that happened. Here, here's, here's my recollection of that. I believe the scene that I did for the audition was the scene where Junior is sleeping and he's having the dream about Mary. I, I kind of believe that was the audition. Uh, uh, so uh, I only saw a couple of pages. And had no idea. They 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 told me what the story was, but they didn't say that you know. Uh, and I, I don't know. I don't know if I asked what it was called. I was just so you know. You got to remember, I was I think 20 years old or 21 years old, and 
here I was auditioning for a movie. Uh, I, I had no idea. I, I didn't think I'd been asked what it was called. So, you know, uh, we found all we all found out about that later when we received scripts and we, we said, what, what sex crime? What? <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you get onto this film, because this is clearly a, a very lower end budget film, this is a, and, you know, they would call it nowadays an independent feature rather than, you know, a low budget feature. And it's, you know, just kind of the, the way that you word things. Um, so I, I know that, you know, at that point, the only real experience kind of filmmaking wise, a lot of the people that worked on the production had was documentary style. Yeah, uh, the guy who, um, who, who was the DP, mm-hmm. uh, a fellow by the name of Victor Hurwitz, I believe, um, he was a documentary, uh, cinematographer and his experience was in exactly the kind of shooting that we were going to be doing which was you know uh just on the go so and and he invented he had his own uh a steady cam rig for his uh super 16 camera but he didn't call it a steady cam rig uh, it it was just you know he made it himself it was uh kind of patched together mm. that's all those shots in the woods uh with us running you know there were no steady cams back then there was this guy Victor Hurwitz who made his own and that's that's how we did that and you you get into this production obviously it's kind of a run and gun scenario okay no and and you're you're working with a lot of relatively new actors and actresses um, on this production was there was there any kind of I mean and also Wes is this being his first film was there any kind of um, getting to know you situations where um, you guys were able to bond and go over the script was there a lot of uh well we didn't we we all kind of got together a little bit and 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 we we said to them that we're not going to do the stuff that's in that original draft Mm -hmm. we we, you know after we were hired we all hired we got the you know we said no this is not we're not going to do this because it was a lot raunchier i Mm. mean believe me uh so Wes and Sean and, and Wes, to his credit, listened to us and redid the script and it came out to be uh, what subsequently became a, a, a huge hit. So we were we were all working together. I I, I don't remember uh, a lot of discord. I, I remember us all kind of like just being thrilled to have these jobs and to be doing this. So, you know, we, we kind of all worked, although Hess uh, um, stayed in character uh, 24 hours a day. He figured out who the, his crew, crew character was, and he just stayed in that character, and he would intimidate the girls, and, and, and he would intimidate anyone he could. David was a, a bull in the China shop of life, and uh, he, he just stayed in that character. So we were all kind of, you know, doing, their, doing our things. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I've I've watched several documentaries. I know that there's uh, quite a few on the Arrow Blu-ray that's coming out in May. Yes. Correct. Yes. Um, one of the things that I had seen in one of the documentaries is that he had written the song "I Got Stung" by Elvis Presley. 
Did, did, uh, did he did he wrote, say that? <laughs> wrote um, uh, um, for Elvis. Um, oh shoot, I can't remember the name of it. No, not I got stung. Um, he wrote all shook up. All shook up. Yeah, it was all shook up. David also wrote uh, uh, Speedy Gonzalez, the song Speedy Gonzalez. And it's funny that you say that because you did some writing for Looney Tunes, correct? I wrote, yes, uh, I wrote a special for uh, uh, Warner Brothers called How Bugs Bunny Won the West. Now, this is uh, on your IMDb in terms of writing credits. It's one of your first writing credits, and it's, you know, uh, jumping off of what is essentially (laughs) a film that, you know, was brandished with an X almost because of the, the level of sex and violence. And... Like, how does that transition from from just one of the most nightmarish, you know, controversial films of the 1970s, even more so than the, Tex- the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, in my personal opinion? The transition to being a writer? Yeah. Okay. Um, here's how that happened. Last House came out, and what, when, when we were making Last House, um, I had a, a, I discovered in that process that I had a, a profound intellectual curiosity about how films were made, uh, uh, like down to the minutia of, of production. So I paid very close attention to Wes and his and whatever writing process he was having and how the script evolved and then how it was shot. And I, I left that experience uh, uh, really, you know, w- w- with some career direction because I, I I kind of knew after that that I didn't just want to be an actor I wanted to to, to be more hands-on mm-hmm. so that was the serious thing uh, uh, but back to when it came out when last house came out I I was uh, I became like a minor celebrity uh, because of it mm-hmm. for, for a limited period of time but during that limited period of time um, I was fucking my brains out and because when <laughs> No, I, so, so, it, and I got used to that. Like, oh, aren't you that guy in Last House? Boom, off would come the pants. So I said, wow, I've, A, I've made a really correct career decision. And B, how do I keep this going? And then all of a sudden, after the, the bluster of Last House stopped, so did the, you know, so did the easy banging. So, uh, what happened was I, I went from having this, to having nothing uh-huh. and it was depressing because after last house you know that that initial thing i was just another out of work actor and and nothing is uh, a more uh, uh nothing is less romantic than telling a woman in new york city that you you are an out of work actor so uh i was at a party one night and i heard a guy talking to a girl and he was telling her he was a writer and he started talking and she was this girl this hot girl was like fucking enthused and and like mesmerized so i figured i could do that you know i I could tell girls i'm a writer uh so i went out and i i got a bunch of books about writing and i i read the books and i read all the buzzwords and i learned you know i learned how to talk it and uh went to a party told a girl i was a writer Bibbidi bop, end up spending the night with her. So I said, okay, 
I'm now a writer. So I'm at another party a few weeks later and I, uh, uh, I'm doing that thing. I'm hustling a girl and, uh, I, I feel a tap on my shoulder and I turn around and it's a, a, a director who I had done a commercial for. And he said to me, Hey, listen, I, I overheard what you were saying. Um, you know, I've got a company in LA. I'd love to read that project. I'd love to read that script you were talking about. So I took him aside and I said, look, I, I gotta be honest with you. I, I'm not really a writer. I just do this to get girls. I just, that's, I just have this, that's why. And he said, is it working for you? I said, yes, constantly. And he said, you are a writer. You just haven't written anything yet. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, dude, if you can get a woman to take off your pants, take off her pants because of something you're saying to her, you're a writer. You just need to put it to better use. So this is a true story. Yeah, it's a true story. So, so <laughs> Jesus um, Christ. I had an idea. I told it to him and he said, OK, let me see the script. And when you get get it finished, I'll send it to my agent in Los Angeles. So I wrote the script, sent it to him. He sent it to his agent in Los Angeles, who sent it to NBC, and suddenly I am a writer because I, I sold the script to NBC, and I moved to California. So that that's how I made the transition. It was kind of bizarre, uh, uh, but in keeping with my three life goals when I left college, it's perfectly uh, in sync. So... <laughs> I know it, it doesn't make any sense, right? Uh, I, no, honestly, if you think about it, and and, and I've I've said this on more than one occasion, uh, the greatest advancement in mankind have been made because guys were just trying to get laid. <laughs> but it, it's I tell my wife that it's all it's all about the you know what the mm -hmm. the, the nookie. You did it all for the nookie. That's right. Well, when I left college, I had three life goals. Goal number one: smoke as much weed as possible. Amen. Goal number two, have sex with as many different women as possible. Amen. Goal number three, make just enough money to afford the weed and the women. <laughs> that is a, that is a great outlook on life. I, you know, I, 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 and I will tell you, Larry, that I have greatly exceeded my own expectations. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you've you've been consistently working since '78 as a writer. Yeah, and you are trying your hand now at directing i i had watched an interview well a, a panel that you had did a couple years back and it uh you had said during the panel that you were working on wrong side of town i, I am i did a I, I did some work on that i but i had nothing to do with the film in as it was in production except that rob van damme's a pal of mine and you know so uh, did you do the initial story and then it was just taken over or I, I just I did a little discussion. I, you know, uh, I didn't have a whole lot to do with that because I know that you also worked with that director on uh, chaos. Yeah. yeah, David and I are good. David DeFalco and I are he's a he's a, a nutty guy, but a good guy. And yes, I did. I did uh, have uh, some input on chaos and uh, chaos. Uh, you know, I'm just looking at the poster. It seems like it's reminiscent of uh, another project that you worked on. <laughs> it, it was it was an homage. David David DeFalco uh, was a is a diehard Last House on the Left fan. I mean, so much so that that he sought you you know a long time ago when we, when we first met, he sought us out to to meet us, and um, 
his his idea of making uh, chaos was to make his own uh, swan song kind of uh, not a swan song wrong term uh, his own homage his own uh, 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 honoring the film so mm-hmm. and, and you know he did what he did and I was there to just give him a little input now and when when you because again you had to transition into writing because the acting well dried up do you feel that that was a consequence of the violent nature of last house on the left and what are your opinions um now as a much more seasoned gentleman in regards to violence in cinema do you feel that well, that outlook has changed in any way or yeah, here's here's a, i i have um several times been part of a discussion about whether violence in motion pictures and television is a contributing factor to violence uh, in real life. And uh, what what responsibility do filmmakers have to, uh, you know, to, to kind of um, mitigate what they put on the screen? And my only answer to them is, okay, if that's true, you know, what movies was Hitler watching? Uh, what movies did Stalin watch? What movies did Attila the Hun watch? There were evil people doing evil things to mass amounts of, of uh, the populace long before movies and TV uh, uh, came about. So I don't know. I, I, I'm not a big fan of violence anymore because I don't really like to look at it. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm more of a comedy guy, which is kind of funny that I'm also known for this very violent film. Um, but on the other hand, I'm a big big believer that you know people have a right to express themselves and if nobody wants to see it then nobody will come see it and then that's the ultimate arbiter um i'm not a big uh, person on uh you know on censorship or or telling other people what they should see or think and, and if you think about it you know as long as humanity has been telling stories there have been stories of violence and you know uh, these these different circumstances but they all are ostensibly the same thing you know Correct. man kills man man's inhumanity to man it's an exactly old... yeah so uh you know i'm obviously i do a poor podcast i i don't necessarily feel that you know violence in cinema is reflective of um it doesn't create violence in society it's more reflective of it's violence reflect- in society with last house um, what freaked a lot of people out was um, it looked real. It looked we n- none of us were known at the time, mm-hmm. so uh, uh, we were we we were those guys. And and the way Wes shot the picture, I've described it as it's as if he he opened a window uh, on a horrible crime in progress and allowed the audience to witness that crime, uh, uh, kind of in a docudrama format you know almost like what uh they did what they were able to do with like the blair witch project where where you're you're blurring the lines of what reality because you know most films when you look at them you're able to look at them as a picture as just a movie you have that that distancing because of the way it's framed and everything there's a well-established proscenium yeah the film is on the other side and you're on one side and and 
you know, there you are. But with Last House, like you just said, the lines were blurred. So so it, it was, uh, you know, wow, this is pretty creepy because it's so real. And all the effects that we did were, you know, what, what's known as on the day. There was nothing was uh, there's no CGI, no, no computer effects, nothing. Everything was real as we did it. And you, you could also, you know, attribute a fair amount of that to the score of David Hess, where, you know, the, I, I've always one of the most powerful moments um, from my personal opinion is the moment after he rapes Mary with yeah, the, the, she, that when, moment when itself fought, after he shoots her that look on his face no but uh, when oh, okay. when he when he's raping her that moment itself is it's you know it's unsettling it's the the framing of it the the the, the cuts the way that that is done it, that's a just an awful horrible terrifying scene but the scene that follows immediately afterwards where she picks herself up she says a prayer she throws up and just gets up and walks away and that music that comes in and just like everything about that moment is you know because when she gets up and she's having this moment you guys are all looking at each other you're you're looking at your hands you're looking at what you've done you're confronted with your own violence and it's it's almost as if you were unaware of what you guys were doing it was all fun and games but this moment is kind of the impasse where you've you've crossed over and you know they, they did god awful things to these two girls these, these poor girls um you know made them piss themselves and uh made them make it with each other and and your character is constantly trying to de-escalate the situation and you know so you're already there but it's it's getting everybody else to the realization of what's going on and it's just it's one of the most powerful moments in film to me and to, uh, give, you, to give you an idea of the the range of of david hess's uh ability and, and brilliance was that he was that guy as an actor committing those atrocities on that girl and he was also the guy who wrote and performed and sung that incredibly haunting and moving ballad while all this was going on that was david's range that was a that's a clear example of who david was as a human being the, that those two uh, uh points of demarcation that are so uh, uh, incredibly wide apart and David Hess existed as a human being within those two boundaries and you you guys I, I can only assume again we, we mentioned that this was very much a run and gun kind of situation so there isn't a lot of time to really internalize or feel kind of what's going on in the moment you know you're, you're doing your part but w being able to have the time from the time that you've made this film to now, and I'm, I'm assuming you've seen the film, is is that something? Are there moments that you kind of carry with you, as far as the things I carry that you the did? I carry the whole experience with me. That I learned every, I learned the fundamentals and the foundation of everything I know about filmmaking uh, during those four weeks in Connecticut. I, I everything I know. That you can trace it back to some moment that happened uh, um, 
on uh, on that shoot. And I I mean you you gotta you know I've ha- I have this theory about my career, and and I've had a very successful mediocre career. Uh, <laughs> I, I've no I have that's what real I gotta you look at it realistically that that's what it's been like. Uh, I've worked all the time once mm. I started writing. I worked all the time. I worked for you know enough that I get a, I'm now get a nice pension from the Writers Guild, and uh, uh, so I I in healthcare from the Writers Guild for the rest of my life. Uh, so I worked enough to do that. I just never really worked except for Last House. I never really worked on any big hit shows, uh, but I always worked. So like I said, it's been a very successful mediocre career, and now I've gone back to uh, doing the thing. The, the part of my career that I, I put aside and uh, uh, gave up to do what I did. Mm. So what I'm talking about is I'm back doing stand-up. Uh, and I've been back doing stand-up since last September. And how do you feel uh, the, the scene has kind of changed between when you had kind of gave it up to now? Because comedy is... It, specifically with the the PC culture and everybody being offended by everything, do you feel that there's any kind of pushback on things you may want to say? Or do you feel that you've matured to the point that some of the things that you might have wanted to say at that time, you don't necessarily want to say anymore? Okay. Um, just to give you a little background, I'm... Uh, where are you located? I'm in California, uh, Northern okay, California. So, okay, Northern California. Mm-hmm. Okay, so have you you you've been to LA, right? Yeah. Okay, so you know the Comedy Store? Yes. Okay, you know all those names on the wall, the Comedy Store on the outside? Mm-hmm. Mine's one of them. That's uh, I, I am part of the uh, Comedy Store's most famous class of 1977 that included David Letterman, Jay Leno, Robin Williams, Billy Crystal. Uh, Michael Keaton, uh, George Miller, uh, Kip Adada, Johnny Dark, uh, and, and a host of uh, Jeff Altman, uh, Mark Summers, uh, and a whole bunch of people. We all started together. These these are people who are my professional peers. And uh, uh, I started writing. I started to get writing jobs about a year and a half after I started at the Comedy Store. I started to get really big time, like attention and time demanding writing jobs. So I had to give up my standup. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, it's a different time. And I've been since last September since I started. I've been hitting the, com- the 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 smaller comedy clubs, not the comedy store uh, uh, yet. But I've been hitting the smaller clubs. And what I notice about audiences and comedians today, audiences. Uh, accept very little as a, as material, and the comedians, the young, a lot of the young comedians, and I'm speaking of the millennial guys mm-hmm. uh, and and women, they confuse a funny premise with a punchline, and that you know we we were learning how to write and learning how to perform at the same time simultaneously because none we didn't know, but. We, for some reason, we learned how to write a real joke instead of just standing up on the stage and throwing out something that may be an amusing premise but is undeveloped. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just my observation. I think that what's lacking in a lot of younger comedians 
is the 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 understanding that a premise is one thing, but you got to execute it, and that execution is is what the jokes are all about. Well, like, uh, have you watched the the two new Chappelle uh, set, sets that he did uh, uh, for yeah. Netflix? He, he did four, but the last two are the ones specifically that I wanted to talk about. Um, there's there's the one where he gives you the punchline right at the beginning of the show, and then he you know he does the show, and then he comes back with that punchline. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. I I, I kind of uh, been busy working on my own material, but I, don't, I there's something I should tell you. I don't perform as myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, I have created a character that I perform as, and uh, uh, it's a, a character based on my maternal grandfather and the rabbi who was the rabbi of the synagogue uh, that we belonged to when I was a child. And uh, uh, so I go out on stage looking like an old Hasidic Jewish man. And um, the character's name is El Yid, that's E-L and then Y-I-D. And I do it with a dialect, like I do it as an old Jewish man that I remember. And I, I found that I, I, I'm very comfortable in another person's skin. You know, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's I, easier to I, say kind of the things that you might ne- necessarily want to say as yourself but are still kind of in there. Right? Yes, because the character has a, a level of authority that I personally don't present with. Uh, so it's it's been fun, and, you know, it's uh, so far so good. And you feel that it's being received well? Oh. Um, yes. You know, because I know that a lot of the times, uh, you know, before you start really working the, the larger shows, you workshop these things yep. and so you're you're in the process of still kind of flushing out what it is that you're trying to say as an overall well um, story I, I, or i pretty much know that what where i am now is i've been doing uh since last september i've been doing like four to eight minute sets at these little clubs and on uh, uh march 12th i'm doing my first full 15 minute set uh so you know we'll see i have plenty of material it's not the lack of material not 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 having material it's just working it out it's getting getting to hear it because w- one of the things that you realize as a writer that words uh, uh sound differently when they're spoken than they look on the page mm-hmm. and do you do you think about structure in terms of you know when you're doing a an eight minute set as opposed to a 15 minute set the way that you want to structure the set um yes. rather than just Hit him with this. Hit him with this. Hit him with this. Well, I, I, yeah. What I do is I come out and I introduce. I, I, by virtue, by way of a, of, of a few jokes, like two or three jokes, I introduce the character. Mm-hmm. You know, the character has a real history. The character has a backstory. It's not just me doing a dialect. It's, you know, this is a guy who, who uh, was a, a kosher chef and caterer for forty years and retired, and now he's decided that he's always liked to make people laugh. So. You know, he's going to do this. So he's a real character. He's a real person with a history and a family. And, and you know, I've really gone, I've done a deep dive uh, uh, into who this guy is. So when he walks on stage, it's not just superficial. He's not just a superficial guy in a costume. It's, he's a real person. And is if you take offense to this, I, I totally understand. But is that why you grew the gnarly beard out? Or was no, that just something no, that we're like... No. Well, shit! I already got this beard. <laughs> no, no, no. It was what what happened was 
again, with me, there's always a moment, you know, uh, uh, of discovery. I had gone, been hanging out at the comedy store uh, for about a year and a half, you know, just and and it very nicely there because I'm I'm an original paid regular in class of '77, so I, I occupy a, a very small place on a, at, at a royal table, um, and. I said, yeah, I'll go back and do the stand-up. And every time I would leave, I'd look up at my name on the wall and it would make me feel good. You know, I'd say, wow, I was really there. You know, I, I didn't hear about it. I didn't read about it. I was there. And then one night uh, I walked out of there and I looked up at my name and I got depressed. And I, and I couldn't figure out why I was depressed and wh where was this coming from? And I unraveled it and realized that I was depressed because – I I was um, trying to compete with my younger self, mm. and that's a clear mistake. And that fucking depressed me even more because uh, you know. Then I said, "Well, what about the stand-up?" So then I decided to put the stand-up away and just you know realize maybe I'm fucking over. You know, I'll just hang out. I'm comfortable. What do I need this shit for? And and uh, uh, then one day I was in the shower. And I got out of the shower and dripping wet. And I'm not a, you know, a heavy pro. I'm a skinny guy, right? Mm -hmm. So, so, uh, uh, I looked at myself in the mirror and the water was dripping off my hair and my face and that long, gnarly beard that you're talking about. And the water was dripping. And I just looked at myself and I said, you know, man, there's no getting away from it. You are nothing but an old fucking Jewish man. You are a fucking old Jew. You're a Jew old. You're like any one of those. <laughs> old fuckers that you you know from when you're just that's you've grown into that that's who you are yeah. I, and I stared at myself Larry and then I could feel a thought coming and I looked at myself in the mirror and that sad kind of darkish depression leaves my eyes and is replaced by a twinkle and I actually pointed to myself with my index finger and said don't go away. I'll be right back. And uh, I ran into my closet. I put on a, a, a white shirt and a black tie and a, a black suit that I had and a hat, a fedora that I just owned. And I walked into myself and I looked at myself in the mirror again and I puffed out my beard and I said, now they'll listen to you. You know, so <laughs> you just conveniently had a had an old Hasidic Jew man outfit in your closet. It's just, well, yeah, I mean, I've got a bunch of suits, so I had a black suit, so I put it on. Uh, and I said, oh, this is, this is wonderful. Look at you. Look how you're looking. This is what you should do. All right, now. So now I just I started writing the, that very day. I sat down and started writing, and now I've got like 108 pages of material, and most of it seems to be working. That's awesome. Um, uh, last question, and uh, then we can start wrapping up, and this is kind of a tie-up question. Uh, with everything that you've been able to do, you've, you've literally been able to run the gambit of, you know, different types of positions within the industry, within, uh, entertainment. And whether you, you know, are willing to accept it or not, you've managed to stay consistently employed, which is, uh, something that a lot of people that are in your same position cannot say. Trust me, I, I am humbled by the. I am one of the luckiest motherfuckers on the planet. With all of that, you know, in your repertoire, is there something? I, I know that you're going back into comedy. 
but is there something that you always wanted to say uh, cinematically or you know with your comedy that you haven't been able to say yet that you still want to try to say I have a, a series that I created and wrote the pilot for called uh, um, when America was great and uh, my partner uh, Gary Hart who uh, was for uh, over a decade the president of Paramount Television. Gary's out trying to make a deal on it now. It's a it's an, uh, a streaming off-network, half-hour, single-camera comedy that takes place in Pittsburgh in 1964, and it's a very rough, edgy, coming-of-age uh, uh, series that, that focuses on the relationship between a, a father and son from the time we meet them both when the kid is about, I don't know, 14 until he leaves for college. It's the, that period of time, which, uh, and it's the, the nature of the relationship of these two guys. Uh, and it's based on my own, my own life experience. I would really like to do that show because it, it takes place at a time in the United States that, that, you know, was very, uh, uh, um, you know, there was a lot of turmoil. It was the beginning of the Vietnam era. It was there was a lot of shit going on. So I think, yeah, if I get a chance, I would really like to to write about that time period and its connection to the present. Mm-hmm. So perfect. And uh, you know, you had mentioned that you're going to be doing stand up. It's March 13th, correct? March 12th, Monday, March, March 12th. 12th. Yeah, at a, a place called Theory. It's the uh, 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 one night. It's the Manhattan Elk Comedy Lodge. It's on Reseda Boulevard, 6101 Reseda Boulevard, and I will be there as Elliot. And you're also going to be at Texas Frightmare this year. I will uh, be at yeah, as me though. Uh, uh, it's Texas, so I won't be showing up as an Orthodox Jew. And uh, you're going to be there with Jeremy, right? I will be there with Jeremy. Uh, Arrow Films is bringing us in. They're the ones who are releasing the uh, new Blu-ray, and, and that's uh, a two-disc. It's it's loaded with stuff. Beautiful. I I've, I've been. They sent me a description of everything that's on it, and I said, "Wow, if you're a Last House on the Left fan, I don't know how you don't buy it." Yeah, this is one that's going to go on my shelf because it is, and and I I've tried to explain this to you kind of through the course of this that it's one of my all-time favorite films and. You know, being able to talk to you has been just an amazing honor. Larry, listen, if you, if you get a copy of it, send it to me and I'll sign it for you and then I'll send it back to you. I, I absolutely will. That that would be awesome. And um, is there a place that you want people to try to find you just on Facebook or uh, do you have uh, like a Twitter? I, I, have, I have enough friends. <laughs> <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah. I do that to my wife sometimes. She'll want to introduce me to someone, and I lean over and say, I don't need to name those. I know I have enough people. What, what, one more person I have to add to my Rolodex? You know, so, <laughs> no, I'm happy. I am on Facebook. You can Anyone can find me on Facebook. People do that all the time. Yeah. I'm pretty accessible because I'm not that famous. Uh, you know, I, I just enjoy try to enjoy my life. Excellent. I, I've, I've grown up, and I've, I've been able to live my life as a teenager with a big allowance. And, and you get laid when your wife is uh, happy with your cleaning ability. <laughs> with my cleaning and my cooking. Yes. No, my no, my wife, my wife isn't. She's like, first of all, she's like 18 years younger than me. Okay, and she's Colombian and absolutely beautiful. And she tells me all the time, if I couldn't cook and I wasn't funny, she'd be out the door. Yeah, uh, 
another guy, a comedian, Ralph Garman, he says, uh, make him laugh, make him breakfast. And, uh, you, you've, you've made me laugh consistently throughout this. And I, I did not know what I was going to be getting into when we started this conversation. I'm absolutely thrilled that we had this conversation. If you guys, as, go ahead. As am I. And if you guys are here just for Mark, this is your very first episode, but you've enjoyed the conversation, you can find out more about us by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash creature pod, by following us on Twitter and Instagram at creature pod. Again, I just cannot tell you enough how much of an honor this was for me. Uh, thank you so much, Mark. I, I really appreciate it. And we should definitely stay in touch. Absolutely, Larry. It's been, it's been absolutely my pleasure. And that's going to do it for us, you guys. So, for Mark Scheffler and for myself, again, my name is Chunky, or Larry. <laughs> this has been another episode of the Creature Features Podcast on geeksoftheindustry.com, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Listen with someone you trust.